0: The best way when you're thinking about these rules, whether it's LLCs, corporate regimes, limited partnerships, is that they really do provide a lot of flexibility to navigate flows within a structure so that you're either getting full flow through treatment if you want that, or you're optimising the optimal way of applying foreign tax credits against other parts of a holding company structure. You are listening to US Tax, the podcast for Australian accountants with US clients.
1: Welcome to Update 30 of US Tax. This is Heide Robson. We first published this episode you're going to hear today. We first published this episode as episode 355 in Tax Talks because it covers Australian tax, hence Tax Talks. But it also discusses US tax in great detail. And so, hence, we will also publish it here because, as you know, US tax is all about US tax for Australian tax agents. And it's not just today's update. The next two updates will also be reruns of episodes we already had on text talks because all three updates, update 30, 31, and 32, cover Australian tax as well as US tax. I'm just keen to bring them to you here so that you have all US tax episodes together and don't have to jump between US tax and tax talks all the time when you are just interested in US tax. So without further ado, let's cut across. Here's update 30 about US public and private markets markets. When you invest into public or private markets in the US, so public markets like Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange and private markets like venture capital and seed funding and so on, when you do that, how should you structure these investments? Trade through an Australian entity or set up a vehicle in the US? This is what Peter Harper of Essena Advisors will discuss with you in this episode. The first question to Peter is what common pain points and questions clients seek his advice on?
0: As we talk about these complex questions, I want to caution listeners that each case that may come before them will be unique and it is vital that they consult with someone that has US expertise in order to handle delicate matters. These topics are not simplistic and need experience and proficiency to tackle. So please reach out to us to address any issues that your clients may bring up with the diligence they deserve. Really, there's kind of two things you know, a lot of the advice we're giving is around either US direct investment, where it's folks are either, you know, they're share trading or they're looking at US based private equity or and so it's structuring into an investment or it's structuring into some form of operating asset where they've got an Australian business, they're looking to expand into the US. They want to understand how to bolt that together. And a lot of the times there might be one or two founders or executives that are going to move over to the US together with the expansion. So any one of those, we could start on any format and kind of lead into that.
1: If you now look at Bob, is. Doing significant share trading or share investment in the US. Could you run through how you would structure this in Australia and then also how you would structure this in the US?
0: The biggest thing really depends on whether it's going to be private markets or public markets. When it's public markets trading, so really it's a matter of someone's looking to build our US based portfolio and US public companies. It really is just focusing on the atypical structure that you'd be thinking about private investments for in Australia. And the reason for that is. As a general rule, shares as an intangible, they're only subject to tax in the country in which the owner is a resident. So whether it's an Australian company or an Australian trust, the tax, whether it was an income tax issue or a capital gains tax issue, depending on the volatility of trading, the only issues you'd be worrying about from a trading perspective would be Australian issues. When it comes to withholding tax, there are a suite of Companies that are, you know, the dividend paying companies, the yields on dividend paying stocks in the US versus Australia are very, very different. You know, high yielding dividend paying stock in the US might be two or 3% which compare that with Australia, it's a pretty average return. So it's far less common in US public markets for people to invest for cash flow than they're normally investing for capital growth. So in that scenario, Bob would just be worrying about the returns in Australia.
1: So the question of whether the withholding tax is 15% or 5% or 0% usually doesn't matter so much because the yield is pretty low in the US anyway. Hence, Bob would be investing in the US for capital gains and not for cash flow hence the withholding tax most likely won't worry him so much and the capital gain on these share portfolios since bob is based in australia would be capital gains tax free in the us so he would only have to deal with capital gains tax in australia correct
0: that's correct and so as a result of this it is rarer for folks to structure into trading operations in the US via US entities, right? If someone was coming from a, another country where there was some type of civil unrest uh, or concerns about governance or whatever else, then yes, they might like think that it's more optimal to structure into a US vehicle for share trading. But in the context of Australia, you know, I think the optimal structure is going to be just trading through a either an Australian company or an Australian trust.
1: Yes, or individual.
0: Yeah, or individual. Yeah.
1: You wouldn't go through a US vehicle because trading from Australia is as good as it gets. When you are trading from Australia through an Australian entity, you have nothing to do with the US tax system apart from the withholding tax on the pretty low yield anyway. Why would you change that by trading through a US vehicle which now pulls you into the US tax net, correct?
0: Correct. I think a lot of folks when they hear about international taxation for the first time and they don't have a lot of knowledge, their initial reaction, oh there's tax havens, as this way to somehow get a reduced rate of tax. In my world where you're primarily looking at optimization for general business transactions everyone's core objective is just ensuring there's not double tax because it's far easier to get double taxed on returns than a lot of people would think so if you can set up a structure like this where bob can you know invest in the us market if that's really his objective like he's not doing this for any tax reason his sole objective is investment focused and accessing us public markets then there is absolutely no value in operating through a us vehicle
1: so that's the public market and now, does the answer change for private markets?
0: It changes in the sense that most private market deals are going to be structured through US partnerships. So at the US LLCs or US LPs, limited partnerships, and there was a very substantial case, a Grecian magnesite that was passed down in uh, 2017, I believe.
1: Let me quickly tell you a bit more about Grecian Magnesite. So Grecian Magnesite was a Greek corporation and a partner in a U.S. partnership. And then Grecian Magnesite sold its interest in the partnership. And the tax court found in 2017 that the profit from that sale was not U.S.-sourced income and hence not subject to U.S. income tax. That was appealed and went to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in 2019. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the tax court's decision. No tax in the U.S. Back to Peter.
0: Prior to this case, and this was not a widely publicized point of view, and the reason it wasn't widely publicized I'll get to in a moment, but prior to this case, the way the U.S. tax rules worked was If you had an active partnership that was generating active income, that activity was segregated from the activities of the individual. So there wasn't this notion where, okay, if you've got a partnership that's generating US-sourced income, that that automatically flows through to the underlying partner. Why that's a substantial issue was you had situations where... And this was massive kind of in the hedge fund world where people would have these substantial US operating businesses that were generating US sourced income, where they could actually trade the interests in these partnerships offshore without US taxation, right? And so what Grecian did, it came down and confirmed that position. As soon as that happened, the Trump administration changed the law so that any activity of a US-based partnership that's generating US sourced income Will actually flow through to the underlying owner, right? So we take this example with Bob. Bob's investing in US private markets, assuming the US private market, let's say it's a real estate deal, so it's generating US sourced income, that is going to create a US tax footprint for him, right? So it still mean that he might structure it into that deal through an Australian trust or an Australian company, but the answer is more complex because you've got to flow the, you're now bringing into the situation a return that is US source, subject to US tax. You know, we've got to ensure that we're getting access to the foreign tax credits as they're flowing through to the fidos as they're flowing through to the the underlying owner. And so you know that kind of makes the structural choices for private deals a little bit different. And so then the other question that this kind of then raises, because this is a very big kind of issue that is you know highly technical issue that, very difficult for foreign advisors to get accustomed to because the U.S. notion of your check-the-box regime is very, very different from anything that exists in Australia, right? So that fundamentally, you, you're dealing with this notion that eligible entities can pick their own path as whether they're taxed as you know, disregarded entities, partnerships, corporates. But the mysterious thing about a U.S. LLC is that if it doesn't have a U.S. trade or business, then you can have income generated by it. It's not subject to U.S. tax, Right, So you know, I think the correlation between a US LLC and the notion of what we thought a trust in Australia may have been to a lot of the recent cases that have sort of come down over the last couple of years in Australia dealing with sort of the Australian taxation of foreign sourced income absolutely holds true. In the US, LLCs are fully flow through structures and the only way you are going to have income that's subject to US taxes if you've got a US trade or business and you've got effectively connected income.
1: When you spoke about the partnership, if Bob did this investment in a private market and hence did this through a partnership, which entities would be in this partnership?
0: The thing with it, when you set up an LLC, it is from a legal fiction and a tax fiction, they're different, right? But purely from a tax perspective, with an LLC, if you have a single owner of an LLC, it's classified as a disregarded entity, right? And I think sometimes I find with Australians that are new to this concept, they kind of just say pass-through entity versus corporate, but that's not true. It's a disregarded entity. That's the correct terminology. And really what that means, if you've got one owner, it's taxed as a sole proprietor. If you've got more than two owners in an LLC and it's taxed on a flow-through basis, then it's going to be taxed as a partnership.
1: Good. And so this is what you meant when you spoke about a partnership. Did you mean a multi-member LLC?
0: Yeah. So it can either be a multi-member LLC or it can be a limited partnership. What you'll generally find in the regulated investment world, all of the big funds will be structured through limited partnerships. LLCs are really the domain of you know, private operating businesses or smaller scale investment vehicles.
1: Good. And so now when you have either a multi-member LLC or a limited partnership, who are usually the partners to this? I assume, are they usually foreign entities?
0: It can be anyone. Whenever these structures are set up as an aggregator, of investors, you know, they don't have any nexus to the US tax system. So by virtue of being effectively an inholding investment vehicle where all they're doing are aggregating investments and then investing into some other structure, whether they've got a US trade or business, will be dependent on the downflow of income. What I mean by that is, let's say Bob is an Australian company and he's investing in a US LLC or a US LLP, that is effectively an aggregation vehicle for investors. That vehicle in of itself is not necessarily going to be something that's producing U.S. source income, right? It'll be wholly dependent on the nature of the investment income that's generated from the subsequent investment, right? So, if they then went invested in some other entity or business that was generating U.S. income, uh, U.S. sourced income, that would flow down through the structure and give Bob's company this obligation to file a tax return in the U.S. because it's effectively receiving U.S. sourced income.
1: You mentioned FITO before and how to make sure that the FITO flows into the hands of the ultimate owners. That is quite difficult as soon as you have companies in the structure, correct? To have a FITO flowing all the way through to the ultimate owners, you need trust all the way, correct?
0: Correct. What would generally happen is if you lose the benefit of the fighters, I'll get trapped at the company level. So in that example we just gave where we say, okay, we've got Bob, we've got a company that's the Australian owner of that investment. The foreign income tax offsets would be credited inside the company. And so then you're going to have a situation where you're going to have a franking credit imbalance, likely. And so you'll have whatever your net effective economic outcome is based on tax you know, that's been paid along the way. From a US sourced income down the way, and then you may have a franking credit deficit. So, when you're thinking through the structure or the structural choices, we are very focused on two things: whether you are structuring for capital growth or whether you are structuring for cash flow, right? And when you're structuring for cash flow, but in the example that we're giving, let's say you know you've got an Australian based investor and you're investing into a US based private market asset that's cash flowing that may or may not be producing US-sourced income, you want to assure that you have the most efficient pathway to get that income down to the ultimate owners. And so one other alternative can be to have a situation where you have an Australian trust make a check-the-box election to be taxed as a US corporation, right? So the way the check-the-box regulations work is they they basically say that to the extent that an entity is relevant to the US tax system, And they are eligible. So they're an eligible entity as classified by the US tax rules. They have the ability to make an election under the US tax rules to be taxed as a corporation or as a disregarded entity or a partnership. And so if an Australian entity is generating US sourced income, it's relevant. And Australia is a country that can result in in the existence of an eligible entity. So by having an Australian trust make the election, what happens is you've got a US corporation for US tax purposes. Right, which can be better because it eliminates the compliance obligations on the underlying beneficiaries to file US tax returns. Because if you had a situation where you have a US beneficiary of an Australian trust receiving US sourced income, then the ultimate beneficiary, the ultimate recipient of that income, has an obligation to file a US personal tax return, right? Which for a lot of folks is not something that they want to do. So you can file. An election, we tax the corporation. So from a US perspective, you're paying tax at the corporate tax rate, you're filing one return. From an Australian perspective, because this election is irrelevant, and you've got a flow through entity that's a trust, the Fitos that are generated from paying this US taxation can flow through to the underlying beneficiaries.
1: This corporate election, is that an 8832 election?
0: It is. Yep.
1: It's good that you mentioned that. I didn't realize that foreign entities can make an 8832 election. I thought that was only for um, U.S. domestic entities. So it's good to know that it's possible. So now coming to this scenario, you described that an Australian trust makes an 8832 election and hence is treated as a U.S. corporation in the U.S. That means the trust pays U.S. income tax... But does that then give rise to franking credits and hence you don't lose the FITO? Is that what you're saying?
0: No, no, it doesn't give rise to franking credits. But what it does do, it gives rise to phytos because from an Australian perspective, they just see the fact that there has been tax paid on behalf of the ultimate beneficiaries, right? And so therefore the foreign income tax offsets so the biggest issue normally is because the company's paying the tax. But in this instance, you've got the trust paying the tax.
1: And hence it flows through. Correct. That's very clever. Because it's a trust that is paying the U.S. income tax, it flows through to the beneficiaries and hence the ultimate owners are receiving a phyto. Yeah. So Bob investing into the public market and then also Bob investing into the private market, assuming the private market is a passive income vehicle. But actually what you said about the private market would also apply to an active to an active business. It's basically both.
0: Yeah. And I think one really critical thing on that is that when I first encountered the check the box regulations, it's not too dissimilar from Australia where you've got trust law and then you have tax law kind of being overlaid where you've got these two different concepts, right? So the kind of interesting thing about the check-the-box regulations because they were really thought out is you get this scenario in the foreign world, and this is relevant to the controlled foreign companies, controlled foreign corporations regime, and you know whether you've got an active business, but you can establish structures whereby you can pick and choose which... Entity within a corporate tax frame where you want to make an election. And again, I'm jumping over the place a bit, but, and this is sort of relevant to going back the other way, but it shows how powerful the regime is. You can have a situation where you could have a foreign holding company in a jurisdiction that might not have a lot of treaties or where you might like it for a bunch of reasons because it's got a low tax base, but where there's not a lot of activity. These are really just financial hubs, not operational hubs. And if you check the box over an active foreign subsidiary that's earning income in a foreign market, that activity flows through to the ultimate holding company, thereby turning the revenue of the holding company into an active business, right? The best way when you're thinking about these rules, whether it's LLCs, corporate regimes, limited partnerships, is that they really do provide a lot of flexibility to navigate flows. Within a structure, so that you're either getting full flow-through treatment if you want that, or you're optimising the optimal way of applying foreign tax credits against other parts of the holding company structure.
1: Welcome back. I like the idea of having an Australian trust. Making an eighty eight thirty two election in the US, which turns the trust into a corporate entity in the US for tax purposes. So making an eighty-eight thirty two election in the US and then FITO for any tax paid in the US flows through to the beneficiaries in Australia without any tax leakage. I hadn't heard of this before and I think it's a very elegant solution. Before the interview I asked Peter how CENA advisors came about and what they do. Here's Peter's answer.
0: So in 2010, I moved from Australia to the US to set up the office of what is now the senior family office. At the time, I was working in a business that was more of a traditional accounting business that was structured around tax compliance, accounting and consulting. Then about eight years ago, I was appointed by a wealthy individual to set up a single family office. And at the time, there was just a whole bunch of things within the existing infrastructure of a traditional firm that didn't work. We needed access to multifaceted skills across accounting deals and consulting that wouldn't have existed in a traditional practice. So we set about either building from scratch or buying interest in firms that could facilitate that. So today, we're a full stack multifamily office across accounting, tax, estate planning, wealth management, and transactional services. So corporate finance and mergers and acquisitions.
1: Welcome back. In the next update, US Update 31, we'll recover what we previously published as episode 356. Let's talk with Peter Harper about expanding a business into the US. So today we spoke about passive investments into private and public markets. And next week, let's talk about business expansions into the US. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next update.